Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12.2 This is Resistance and Reformation on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. His life was a monument to the vitality of heritage. His writing captured the essence of the heroism, romanticism, and dynamism of the past. His character was a testimony to the vibrant virtues of days gone by. His habits recalled the rites and rituals of a hoary yore. Even his home was a saga in stone, a ballad of yesteryear in pitch and gable and crenellation, and a reliquary of legend, fable, and custom. Everything about Sir Walter Scott bespoke tradition. He was born in 1771 to a respectable middle-class Edinburgh family, but much of his childhood was spent at his grandfather's farm in the beautiful border country. It was there that he first acquainted himself with the rituals, songs, ballads, folklore, and legends of Scotland that captivated him for the rest of his life. He demonstrated early genius and followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a barrister after completing his university training at the extraordinary age of 17. But a practice of law uh, were not to fully occupy his precocious mind, and so he began the work of translating his favorite historical novels and poems of Berger and Goethe from the original German. This literary work proved to be exhilarating to him, satisfying both his artistic bent and his great love for the legend and lore of the past. Before long, he was composing original verse and collecting the great ballads of his beloved borderlands. He composed a great narrative poem, The Lay of the Last Minstrel, which proved to be a tremendous commercial and critical success, and that convinced him that literature should be the main business of his life. Happily married and with a growing family to support, he determined to pursue the literary life away from the constant and pressing demands of the city. He bought a large farm along the Tweed Valley in the border countryside. He called it Abbotsford, and for the rest of his life, he made the house, the grounds, the furnishings, and the library a living demonstration of his highest ideals and loftiest ambitions. Over the years, he transformed the humble farmhouse into a magnificent castle. It was an estate chock-a-block with remnants, relics, and reminders of the rich history of the region. There was an armory with the weapons of Rob Roy. There was a chapel with the devotional books of Mary, Queen of Scots. There was a study with the pens of Robert Burns. There was a library with furniture carved from wood recovered from the Spanish Armada. 
and there was a garden with the roses of Eleanor of Aquitaine. It was there, in his museum-like environs, that he created a series of historical novels that made Scott the most popular author in the world, beginning with Waverley in 1814 and continuing through an astonishing 32 novels over the next 18 years and including such classics as Ivanhoe, Rob Roy, Tales of a Grandfather, Old Mortality, The Antiquarian, and Red Gauntlet, Scott reinvented an entire genre of literature. He added immeasurably to the Scottish sense of identity. Indeed, he almost single-handedly revived interest in kilts, tartans, Gaelic, bagpipes, highland dancing, haggis, Celtic music, and all the other distinctive elements of Scottish culture. Tales of the Covenanters, Wallace and Bruce, the Jacobites, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and Rob Roy were all brought into the light of day by his intrepid commitment to regaling the past. All of his books were stamped with his overarching conviction about the importance of tradition. He believed with utmost fervency that the map of God's activity in this world was not a blank ocean between the apostolic shores and the modern day. Thus, it was imperative that men and nations remember and search for their roots in the luminaries, the risk-takers, and the great movements through the centuries. To neglect them, he believed, was not only to risk repeating past errors, it was to fall victim to a narrowing amnesia that necessarily leaves whole civilizations on the cusp of the magnificent flowering of industrial advance. It seemed to Scott that men were sadly afflicted with a kind of malignant contemporaneity. He was alarmed that their morbid preoccupation with self and thus their ambivalence and ignorance of the past had trapped them in a recalcitrant present. The first few decades of the 19th century had already witnessed a dizzying array of cultural and technological changes. According to journalist Edward Byrne, uh, the comparison of the start of the century with the end of the century was like the juxtaposition of a distant star with the noonday sun. And popular historian M.J. DeForest Shelton exclaimed in all truthfulness that there was more difference between Napoleon's day and ours than between Napoleon's and Julius Caesar's. One century against 18. In the midst of such whirling change, Scott was committed to, to the efficacy of tradition as a way to offer stability, continuity, and guidance. He knew only too well that connections to the past were the only sure leads to the future. He was adamant about the notion that history was not just the concern of historians and social scientists. It was the very stuff of life. In fact, he believed it was the very stuff of faith. Not at all surprising, considering the fact that the vast proportion of the Bible's contents record the history of 
God's dealings with men and nations through the ages. Indeed, there are only two kinds of people in the world, effectual doers and forgetful hearers. So remembrance is the measuring rod of faithfulness. As a result, all of Scott's work essentially argued stridently that stable societies must be eternally vigilant in the task of handing on their great legacy to remember and then to inculcate that remembrance in the hearts and minds of their children and their children's children. He made the venerable aphorism, he who forgets his own history is condemned to repeat it, his personal and professional credo. He was certain that any people who did not know their own history would simply have to endure all the same mistakes, sacrifices, and absurdities all over again. Sadly, such lessons are very nearly lost on us as temporary expediencies supersede permanent exigencies. Thus, at a time when tradition gets a rather short shrift, when traditionalism is all but a lost cause, it would stand us in good stead to once again give heed to the life and the legacy of Sir Walter Scott as a prompt to both resistance and reformation. I'm George Grant on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. For more information and for resources, go to georgegrant.net or to adoringgod.org.